bringing order to the intersection of public, private, and civic. This is Infrastructure Momentum Makers. Welcome to Infrastructure Momentum Makers, presented by Ansarada, the only software solution purpose-built to securely run complex and high-value infrastructure procurement. All your infrastructure procurement processes in one place, all in order. And join me, Vratna Amin, as I speak with the movers and shakers at the intersection of the public, private, and civic sectors about the latest breakthroughs and developments in the world of infrastructure. On today's episode, I'm so excited to be joined by Director of Programs at Global Designing Cities Initiative, Paul Supawanich. For nearly 10 years, GDCI has worked towards its mission to transform streets around the world and to develop global best practice street design principles. Paul is here today to discuss his role as Director of Programs, what programs at GDCI he's most excited about and all the ways they are working to make cities safer, more equitable, and more sustainable. Thanks so much for joining us, Paul. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Ratna. It's great to be here. It's great to see you. And it's been a long time. It's been a long time. A lot has changed in the world and in our lives. Hopefully we'll get to some of that today. Before we get into what you do today, Paul, I've been really eager to talk with you and share with our listeners about our careers, because I think you and I have something unique in common, which is that we have you've worked in consulting in the transportation field. You have worked for politicians. You've worked in technology and been a supplier to public agencies and worked in nonprofit in the advocacy and research world. I might be missing some things, but can you tell us more about your career and what led to some of those choices? Sure. Just to go, not to go too far back, but I think it's for those of us that are in transportation urban planning, I don't know if any of us are destined to know this is going to be our path when we are at a younger age, it evolves over time. And I think that's the same for me. Just my background, I was started off as an engineer, industrial engineer, and I came to realize through a couple of different experiences that while I love the problem solving aspect of it, the output of my work wasn't necessarily what I wanted it to be in my first couple of jobs. And so I somehow transformed or, or transitioned into transportation because I think it would brought this similar set of opportunities to solve problems, but with the output being something that impacts people on a day-to-day basis. And something that I have always associated with my own personality, loving adventure and looking at the definition of an adventure is having an endpoint in mind or a, uh, an outcome in mind, but not exactly knowing how you're going to get there. I would, I would equate a lot of my career choices being of that. I, I know that I've wanted to focus on transportation, focus on impacting the lives of people, but having an opportunity to do it through different lenses that might not all be the same. And, and as you suggested, I've I've tried to find opportunities to, to make sure I'm having the impact in terms of the end person typically in cities, transportation in cities. But as you've mentioned, through the lens of a consultant, through the lens of working at a technology startup within civic city government itself, and now offer, having opportunity to work at the global level with an NGO. That's awesome to hear about. Tell us more about what you're doing now. You're at Global Designing Cities Initiative. You're the director of programs. Tell us about the mission of the organization and what an average day or week is like for you in this role. Sure. Maybe to start with the latter question, the average day or week is constantly changing, but maybe to go to the former question and I can get more into that, is that we work in an organization that, that focuses on changing streets. And we believe that by changing streets, you can change the world. And and this stems a little bit from the, the previous question, because I think over the course of my career, I've come to realize that I have a, a love for 
how we move in cities. And so much of that is foundationally riding on top of our streets and how streets can, in fact, reflect a policy choice of how we want to do things in cities. And so our organization focuses on how can we change streets and knowing not just that streets themselves are oftentimes thought of as an infrastructure challenge or an infrastructure problem, but has so many different effects on so many aspects of our lives. So thinking about in many places in the world, and this was the case in my time in San Francisco, streets are in fact the largest form of public space. If you are a city and you have a challenge and you have levers to, to play with in terms of what resources you have to work that problem, streets are a great asset. And in many places, streets are predominantly used to move vehicles, but they have so many other opportunities. So thinking about at least the way that we think about our work is thinking about how streets affect our public health crisis, whether it be road traffic fatalities, whether it be the lack of physical activity. I'll talk more about in some of our programs. We focus on also how streets can affect children, whether in many places do children have access to play? Are children subjected to air quality issues or noise issues that affect their growth and well-being? And so many other things. So I think that that is something that we do as an organization. We're a team that really focuses on how can we catalyze cities to think about how they might use streets differently and touching on a couple of different problems they might be having to solve in the course of their day-to-day -day priorities. Great. What does that mean for you as director of programs, Paul? Sure. So I have the privilege of overseeing our three programs. So I think we're trying to change streets all around the world. We have three programs that we are currently focused on that are interestingly focused on very different topics. So People often ask me, so what do you do? Can you work in transportation? That's often the easiest thing to define. But if you do throw, if, you, if I were to explain our work through the lens of our donors and the things they're trying to affect in the world, it's uh, public health, being of children and their caregivers, and thinking about how can we innovate as cities. And I'll, I'll use those three bullet points as a bit of a descriptor on some of the programs that uh, we, and, and I, through, my, through my, pro, uh, my role, have a chance to manage. So one of our big programs is the Bloomberg Initiative for Global Road Safety. And, and so the, the mandate of that initiative is to how do we reduce traffic fatalities by half over the course of the life of the, the program. So yes, we're working on streets. Yes, we're working on infrastructure, but how are we actually saving lives? So annually 1.3 million people are, are killed on the streets um, around the world. Uh, majority of them are in low and middle income countries. And Around the world, the leading cause of death for children aged 5 to 29, or youth in general, are road traffic fatalities. So if we look at it through the lens of that is a huge area of opportunity for us to make change. And so a big part of a third of my role in terms of our programs is overseeing that program. And so what that means is we work in about, we work in 14 cities and nine countries as part of that. And we have our mandate from the infrastructure perspective to try to help those cities advance their initiatives to make change in that area. One of the other programs that we oversee is something called Streets for Kids. This is one that's, of course, very exciting for me as a parent for two young children, thinking about the world that we're raising our kids in. Now, we, there's lots of different elements of that, but one omnipresent element for us living in cities, like how do you keep your kids safe? How do you give them access to opportunities? And how can streets play a role in that? And so as part of that work, we work in a variety of different places to help them think about streets differently. Depending on where you are in the world, we know play is such a crucial element of the, the well-being and the growth of children. And we also know that's a huge factor in terms of the caregivers. Who's taking care of those children? How do we make those places for them safe and healthy? Most kids around the world don't have readily access to a playground or somewhere safe to play, but almost all of them will have access to some form of street or some kind of roadway. 
And how can we think about those two elements and, and right, right-size them? And so many of the places we're working, we're trying to think about how are we transforming or rethinking places where children are always present or maybe not always present because they're not safe, they're not inviting for them. They were designed for and for and by someone else. And so that's a big area of focus for that program. And then our, our third and most recent program is how thinking about how can cities do things differently? I know that there's always been a, more recently been a bet towards innovation in government. Government has such a lever to make change and often the biggest lever. If you want to have the biggest change across the most number of people, think about how can we operate and manage and govern our cities differently, better. And so our one of the programs that I oversee as well is a Bloomberg Initiative for Cycling Infrastructure. And that program is about delivering cycling infrastructure. But the idea is how can we enhance or how can we catalyze 10 cities to become the next best cities to do things differently, to deliver things differently over the next few years. That's a little bit of my mandate, director of programs. Those are the programs that we oversee and my role is helping our team in the different parts of the world that we work, deliver that work and, and help the places that we are supporting move forward in some of their own visions aligned with that work. Paul, that's a really impressive set of programs and I'm still digesting the magnitude of that, especially when you bring up 1.3 million people dying per year on our streets. I think that and this is about, for those of, that, of your listeners, I'm sure that are working in transportation and infrastructure, I think one thing that we're trying to change the narrative of is that transportation isn't just a transportation problem. Sometimes we can think about we need to get from point A to point B and just there's a certain set of sunk costs or cost of doing business as a result of that, whether it be the lost time of productivity, the lost time of happiness, the lack of physical activity, the road traffic fatalities, a long list of kind of negative externalities because of the way we've designed our built environment. And so I think that part of this, it's taken us a while to get there and might take us a while to to reset or bring the pendulum back to the middle. But that's something that we're trying to focus on. And we really do believe that bit by bit, piece by piece, we can help places tackle this and help move in a different direction and realize that transportation is a public health problem. It is an opportunity to right the way or make our children's lives better. It is a way to to fight climate change and has so many of these other effects. And I think that's something that's really important for our work to think about or to help the places that we work think about things differently. Absolutely. That makes me wonder, Paul, what time horizons do you largely think and do on or talk about with your partners? Well, we're a team of about 30 people right now. And so if we're trying to change streets to change the world, we certainly could use more help than the 30 people that we have on our staff. Of course, our work when we partner with cities, we, our role and our opportunities to try to catalyze, help build capacity with them so they can them help themselves do this work moving forward. For our particular program, our Grand Horizons are relatively short in the grand scheme of things. We've been talking about how cities have changed as a result of motorization and so many other factors for at least 100 years. Our grant cycles are a little bit shorter. We have three to five years oftentimes to try to put this ball into motion, but, but we are thinking about the long term. We are trying to not just do projects to do project sakes. We're trying to do projects to show and to build capacity with the teams that we work with locally so they can themselves see the opportunities for impact and they can themselves do those things in, on the time to come. So um, while we wish we could be working longer with the cities, I think our happiest success would be like when we could step away from those cities and say, we've done all that we can for you. You have the right tools and the right knowledge to move forward to tackle these challenges on your own. And I think, again, we're thinking about the long term. We have visions for what cities could be and to improve some of these challenges. But in ourselves, we are working with them on a shorter time frame, mainly to help them catalyze and build that capacity for themselves. GDCI combines the brainpower of designers, planners, urban strategists to achieve its mission. 
you have a group with a variety of knowledge and experiences. How do all those different perspectives unite around your goals? How do you integrate everybody? There's always a, an interesting trade-off between collaboration and, and ex expediency. And I think that in this particular group, we have a great, as you mentioned, diversity of perspectives. And I think something that we realize in the cities that we work are very different. I think about transportation in cities, which is most of my history and where we've done our work. And those themselves are a very complex set of challenges. Of course, there's the technical part of it, which in, in many ways, some people see as the harder part. We see it as the easier part. The technical part's quite straightforward. It's the political, it's the procedural part that often can take a lot of a lot of time, a lot of understanding and a lot of patience to figure out what is the best way to move a, a project forward and to have a project stay. So I, I think from our perspective, our team, we have to, to take a lot of those different perspectives within our own organization as designers, as engineers, strategists, but apply them to the different contexts that we work. And you mentioned designers, because oftentimes people say, oh, you're only architects and urban designers, and you really are focusing on the place and the thing. But designing is not just about the project or the place, it's about the process and, and thinking about what is the right set of, what is the right sequence of steps that we need to consider to deliver the outcome that we want, but also, as I mentioned before, deliver an outcome that will sustain itself. It doesn't give us any benefit to deliver the project, check the box, and deliver a safety innovation if that city is not going to move forward and continue to do that and scale that idea, that program for the, the long term. In addition to that, I think something about designing the process is really, one thing that's really important for us is to consider that we do work in so many different countries. And so that process and that perspective from our team is important for us to think about how can we be contextually relevant, contextually sensitive to understand that the way we deliver a safety project in Vietnam is very different than a project in Kenya, which is very different than a project in Bogota. I think that diversity of perspectives from our team, who are representative of the places where we work, a variety of countries represented, variety of languages, is super crucial for us. So I think a combination, to get to your first question, I think as an organization, we rely on those differences of technical and professional experiences, but just as much rely on the diversity of personal and personal experiences from the team that makes up GDCI. Mm, I think that's what a lot of organizations are aspiring to, is to come combine technical and personal experiences and have a process in which those are actually leveraged. I know I've been in a lot of organizations where that's really a work in progress. I would say it is certainly a work in progress for us too. And if you have other listeners who are trying to build teams, especially in a area or a new world where we're more remote, there's organizationally challenges because I think in some ways you want to have, for us, we want to have our team members as close to the work as possible to understand what's happening on the ground but you have a trade-off. You're also trying to build a team who builds personal bonds and has ongoing communication relationships. And that's difficult when you're crossing literally different time zones where I think just even just anecdotally speaking, my boss, Sky Duncan, who is our executive director, is in New Zealand. And so from a time of day perspective, we are covering the entire globe, but we only have 4 p.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern time. Really, that overlaps in terms of our ability to coordinate and liaise and stay in touch on all the different things going on as part of our organization. In your role, you oversee the promotion of safe and equitable and sustainable public spaces are all really big words, also street design around the world. How do you balance designs that are safe, equitable, and sustainable at once? Is balance even the correct framing for this? Because that seems like a very tall task. And I think this is where the beauty of working in streets comes in because I think we wouldn't have put ourselves up to that mandate or that aspiration had we not known that streets actually, in our opinion, 
are an opportunity to improve and to affect all of those different aspects. Just thinking about any kind of project where we are working, oftentimes I would say that we go into places where we say we have a, a place that is a problem because of a variety of different reasons, whether the congestion's terrible or the, the we, people are obviously getting hurt or injured here. We want to change something. People will come in with the opportunities to to want to do something different. And so many of those times, and when we can make something change for the better with it, whether it be safer, well, let's just use safety as an example. If you make an intersection safer, if you slow people down, if you actually make it so it's a, a place where people want to be as, a, as, as opposed to a barrier that separates uh, neighborhoods, let's say, that's clearly a transportation benefit, but we oftentimes see a benefit to the entire community, um, providing more opportunities for people to walk who often, in many places, the people that are walk are the, the most frequent shoppers. So it's benefiting the shopkeepers, increasing economic development. Places that are unsafe previously for, for people to walk are certainly unsafe for children or older adults. And so if we can make those places safer, we're actually opening up the access for a wider range of people. And often those range of people are the most vulnerable which in turn then creates opportunities for improved air quality, improved physical activity. So you can see that depending on how you craft a project, I'm not saying that we can knock all of those out of the park every time, but it's this virtuous cycle of if you can improve one thing, like some, using safety as an example, or designing a place to be healthier, you are in fact touching a lot of different, different key areas. And that's something that we try to make sure that we always have those synergies in any one of our projects that we work on. Interesting. Even that's a different framing, I think, Paul, than what we see in more conventional infrastructure projects of looking at as a virtuous cycle and the feedback loops rather than these sort of static outcomes that we're trying to achieve. Yeah, and that's certainly our hope, too. We're in that position, too, because we have a limited time and limited resources. We're a small team and we are fortunate to work in the cities that we do. But so oftentimes when we do our projects, we want to make sure that cities understand. And this is not just for our sake, but to help the cities and the city leaders understand that these types of small changes can have a variety of positive impacts on the city if you're looking at it through the right lens. Is there a city that you look at currently that you think is really leading the way when it comes to safe, equitable, sustainable design of streets and public spaces? This is always such a, a tough question. I, I don't want you to uh... pick any babies, but maybe there's an opportunity here to draw people's attention to a really great model. Sure, sure. I think in the having the opportunity to work in the places that we do, I, I think there are certain cities that are surprising or stand out that may be surprising for some of your listeners. But I say this knowing, I think the, the people in those cities will say, we've been doing this for a long time and finally someone's recognizing. But I one thing that is about working in a global context is that it's hard to say what is best because what is best is going to be so different based on the context and where that bar is set for the high-income country versus the low- and middle-income country. For example, one city that we, we love to talk about is Fortaleza in Brazil, because you hear all of these stories now about how traffic fatalities are up and people are speeding and just there's this waning hope for the cities that are trying to push for vision zero and, and reducing traffic fatalities. But Fortaleza is one of these cities that has stood out to say we have, they have continually over time and systematically reduced the number of traffic fatalities year over year. They were one of the cities as part of this initiative that actually achieved their 50% reduction, which is a massive number for any city around the world to be able to say, we've taken these deliberate steps and, and achieved our goal. When so many cities are putting their hands up and saying, this is a challenge that we can't tackle and it's out of our hands. So I, I think that's one that, that comes to mind. Just to, to be fair across the globe, I would say, I think in another lens, you can make an argument we'd like to think about what cities 
can do this quickly. I think we'd like to be able to prove, and this is part of our methodology when we work with cities, you don't have to, this doesn't have to be a 10-year process. Well, let's see what you can do today. And most recently, we were in London as part of our Bloomberg Initiative for Cycling Infrastructure with bringing together the 10 cities that were part of the, the winning cities for that initiative. And one of the reasons we were excited to highlight London is because they were able to do a lot in terms of cycling infrastructure and unique ideas, whether it be their cycling superhighways, the low traffic neighborhoods, to do things quickly in a very short amount of time for a major city. Sometimes what people will say, well, if you're the bigger the city, the slower things move. And certainly I think London was a great example of saying they set out some particular goals and they've been able to make a lot happen in a short amount of time that has had tangible impacts. You're bringing up a lot of limiting beliefs as we call them. I know you're a trainer too, Paul, like the mental models that get in the way of folks accomplishing more within these organizations. How do you tackle people's mental models? Do you have an approach for that? So just going to the personal training element of it, I think the one thing is, this does not come from my time at GDCI, but I think one thing that is consistent with any kind of kind of change management, having to convince people that they recognize there is a challenge to be solved. And working with cities, those people that need to be convinced of that, of course, happen at a variety of levels. I think we have the privilege of working with cities who want us to come in and work on this. And oftentimes, of course, that, that starts with the leadership. So having a mayor who firmly believes that we want to participate in this, pro this program, we want to work with GDCI because we believe we have a challenge, but we also believe we can solve that. And that's step one. But of course, that is a, the step one that perhaps is in some ways is the hardest, but some ways it's the easiest because at the, the top level, you can have that type of support. But then when it comes down to each level below that, in terms of getting closer and closer to the project, you can imagine you, then you work with the technical teams who may not believe they want to fight for the status quo. They have their own reasons for wanting to keep things the same. Thinking about when you're delivering projects on the ground, of course, we want to engage with the community and have them believe that these changes will be better. And so I think in any of those different levels, there is work to be done. And I'm not saying this is easy. This can this vary widely of convincing those different groups why we want to make a change, not change for change sakes, but change because we believe there's a better way to do things that has benefits for that community or that city or that whomever. I think that's where things start. We have the benefit of we've been around for nine years. When we started back in 2014, this was, I didn't give this part of the background, cracked it out of an organization called NAFTA, who many of your listeners know, the National Association for City Transportation Officials. And the formula there was that we knew that the cities across the United States were yearning to be able to do things a little bit differently. And that then prompted this hunger to solve that. We need guidance. We need other people to tell us this is okay for us to do these different things. And I think that provides a lot of that kind of credibility, that kind of technical foundation has then allowed so many cities since that point to, to move forward on different ideas. So both having the passion and vision internally, but having a little extra support and a little extra credit, credibility externally. And, and that's how GDCI in many ways got started. And when NACTO had done that formula, Jeanette Sadek Khan, who is the chair of NACTO and our board chair currently, said, let's take the same idea and, and do it globally. And just to go back in history, our first publication was the Global Street Design Guide, taking ideas from cities around the world to understand what worked, what didn't. How do we design streets to best serve cities? And so go to circle that back to your question, I think that helps a lot too, when we can bring up culturally, contextually relevant examples of places that have done things differently, then have seen the benefits, 
that of course helps us move the needle quite a way to, to help cities believe that they can try things differently. In your opinion, or based on your experience, what is the number one way a city can make its streets and public spaces safer and more people-centric? I'm sure there's not a one-size-fits-all number one, but what have you seen over and over that commonly works? Hmm. Well, I would say that it starts with believing. I think none of this happens without believing that things can be differently. I think when, in my own experience working the city government, priorities are priorities, but nothing happens until someone works at it. And I think that unless A, someone believes that and B, is willing to put in the work to make those changes happen, that's the number one thing. In the absence of that, nothing can change, will change. And then I think starting with that, whether that comes naturally or that comes with a little bit of nudge or a little bit of encouragement from external parties, then I think the other pieces are more straightforward. We from our own work, we have the technical guidance, we have the technical background, we can share case studies, we can share ways that cities can move forward. Granted that different cities in different parts of the world have different challenges of, and, and different contexts that they need to work within. But that part's typically straightforward and that's something that we can easily apply. Of course, there's the process part, understanding how to work with the community, how to move ideas forward and in terms of those different places can be quite different. That's something, of course, that we're learning. And some cultures are more formal, some are more informal, some are more hierarchical, some are not. Uh, those are things that we've experienced as part of our work, but are not insurmountable. But again, going back to the believing, that's something that we can't create no matter how hard we try. If a city does not or chooses not to move forward with these things for any reason, that's something that is impossible for us to overcome. Is that something you can perceive right away? Paul, when your team arrives in a city, whether there's belief or not? Typically not. I would say that almost, it, it takes, it, I would say in the different places we work, it certainly takes digging. I think this is one of these things. And even again, this goes to my time as a personal trainer. When you work with the client or as a consultant, we work with the client. It takes the right types of questions to unpack. What is it that you're saying that you want versus what is it that you actually may want? And what might be the barriers that it takes to get there? Because in so many of the places that we work, for different reasons, of course, there is an expectation and there is a the way of doing things that someone might be uh, very comfortable and familiar with that perhaps it, it takes the right set of questions to understand, okay, what things are traditions here or what things are the norms or what things are you actually open to trying something different to achieve an outcome that might feel unreachable at this point. What do you see for the future of GDCI's programs over the next five to 10 years? I think that the places that we have worked, we've had the privilege of working in a lot of different contexts. And I think one thing that's been abundantly clear to us is that there's a lot of demand, not just for GDCI, but demand for cities to change and adapt to meet whatever needs that they have. And so I think it's our hope that we have a chance to continue to work with more places. I think one thing that's specific, I mentioned that right now we design streets through the lens of a few of our programs, whether it be road safety, whether it be improving the lives of children and their caregivers or government innovation. Those are the three areas that are our current areas of focus. We are starting to scratch the surface on some other areas as well, climate change, so air quality, thinking about how we design our streets and what modes they promote and how does that have an impact on the quality of our air. And I think there is a long list of other topics that we know have a correlation to the way we design our streets and design streets within cities that we have an opportunity to impact in a positive way. My hope is that in the course of that time that you suggest that we're going to have a chance to touch on more of those and 
and help again see, help show more people that by doing this work, it's not just about transportation. It's not just about road traffic fatalities or kids. There's a whole host of other opportunities that can be solved by thinking about these problems. I have two final questions we ask all of our guests. First, managing major infrastructure projects, which you're not doing directly, but you are influencing, can be a stressful ordeal. Where do you find order in the chaos? I think one thing that I, I learned as part of being in a tech startup, and this is unrelated to GDC, but I think it'll apply here, is that and a lot of the things that we did, we would ask the question, so like, what is the decision that will help you learn fastest? Or what is the decision that you can challenge yourselves the most? Because we don't have time to, to learn these things in the long run. The most that we can learn, the faster that we can learn, the better off we're going to be. And I would say that in many of the projects that we work in, you, you mentioned the word chaotic, and, and, in, and in fact, they are very chaotic. But for our team, they embrace that because the chaos is as a result of cities wanting to change and trying things that are new and trying things that are things that they hadn't tried before. So in many places, we're trying a new process or building the process as we are delivering it. And that is a lot of the, where the chaos comes from. And I think that's from a project management perspective, probably, and it is in fact chaotic and, and not best practice, but I think from a delivering change perspective, it's exactly where, where we want to be. We want to be feeling that chaos and feeling that change because we are learning in partnership with the cities. They are feeling that for the first time. Now they are feeling, we are managing that chaos together with them. Whereas the next time they're going to be prepared for that because they have learned from this first example. I think where it would be more stressful for us is if we are continually fighting with a city who, who may not want to change or is fighting for the status quo. I would say even Chaos has a certain level of benefit, but I think, and from our perspective, we would much rather be in that position where it's chaotic and we're learning, the city's learning with us, versus us spending all of our energy trying to fight the status quo or trying to move a city who is not interested in that change. That's great to hear you articulate it that way. There's, I feel such an emotional quality to each of those experiences of chaos that actually feels regenerative and chaos that feels like it's embattled or maybe not going anywhere. And you can build up a tolerance for both, I've learned, and but one is much more useful and worth pursuing than the other. And I would say one thing about doing the work that we do in the countries we work in, and I would say there's also a gradient of, of what is the standard of chaos, just even in working in many of those places. And I think that's something that we can appreciate doing work in the different contexts, whether it be Latin America or Sub-Saharan Africa or Southeast Asia, all of them have a, a different level of chaos as the norm of doing the work. So I'd say even just personally for me, just becoming comfortable with that and that knowing that at the end of the day, we're trying to deliver change. It might not always be the straight line that everyone wants. It's going to be a zigzag and there's going to be dotted parts of it and the other. But I think one thing that's been a privilege is that we do have, we have had some time with each of these cities to build those relationships, to build that foundation of trust to allow us to embark on those more chaotic ventures with the end product being changed on the ground. One last question before I let you go. Is there any major infrastructure project anywhere in the world that is on your bucket list to go and see one day? This is another a tough one, right? I think for those of us who work in this industry, there's a long list of things, but 
Maybe I could do one that's like slightly tangential. Absolutely. It does not have to be a streets project. I think as a transportation person, I've always been attracted to just the the energy and movement of a place. I live in Atlanta now and I haven't yet, but I'm still on my list to, to get the behind the scenes tour of how the airport works. I live close to it, so I at least get to experience it. I recently went to the largest rail yard in America, actually the world, and this is in Nebraska, North Platte, Nebraska. I just happened to be passing through. I think that busiest rail station, the Shinjuku in Tokyo. So perhaps I could put that on my list because I I think just beyond the infrastructure itself, I think just seeing kind of the human intention of that kind of energy and movement, something that's inspiring to me. That's inspiring to me, Paul. I really want to thank you for taking time out of your work, which is happening across all these time zones, to speak with us today. It's been really enlightening and inspiring. Yeah, thanks so much, Rada. It's really been a, a privilege, of course, exciting to talk about our work, as I'm sure many of your guests on this program have are doing such interesting things across infrastructure. And I think if one thing that we would certainly share from our side is that infrastructure can come from different sizes, big and small. And I think we tend to think the work that we do sometimes can be small in scope but big in impact and that streets can really have an impact across a lot of different sectors and, and that's what we're hoping to, to do with our work. Thank you for your work, Paul. Thanks, Radna. Our guest today, once again, was GDCI Director of Programs, Paul Subawanich. Thanks so much for joining us, Paul, and sharing the exciting work going on at GDCI. It's been a real pleasure. And thank you all once again for listening to our show. If you're enjoying it, please make sure to leave a review so more people can find us. Until next time, I'm Bratna Amin, and this has been Infrastructure Momentum Makers, presented by Ansarada.